Welcome to AJHP Voices, a series of discussions with AJHP authors and interviews focused on contemporary practice issues. AJHP is the official journal of ASHP, and its mission is to advance science, pharmacy practice, and health outcomes. Thank you for joining us in this episode of AJHP Voices. This podcast engages authors from recent AJHP publications who will give us an inside look at their work and explore the impactful, relevant, and cutting-edge professional and scientific content that drives optimal medication use and health outcomes. My name is Daniel Koba, and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of AJHP. Today, we'll be discussing the report of the ASHP Task Force on Racial Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, which was recently published on AJHP.org. Our guests were members of the DEI Task Force. First, we have the Task Force Chair, Paul Walker, Clinical Professor and Assistant Dean of Experiential Education and Community Engagement at the University of Michigan College of Pharmacy, Vicki Powell, Site Director of Pharmacy Operations at New York Presbyterian Hospital, Jeff Clark, a forthcoming graduate of the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine School of Pharmacy, and an incoming Health System Pharmacy Administration resident and MS candidate at UW Health. And finally, Yvette Morrison, Pharmacy Clinic and Infection Control Manager at the Oklahoma City Indian Clinic. I wanna thank you all for joining us today. And I also wanna extend a special congratulations to Jeff Clark for this momentous point in your life, graduation from pharmacy school and acceptance and movement into your residency program. Congratulations, Jeff. Thank you so much, Dan. Let's get started. Paul, I wanna start with you this morning and a little bit of background on the ASHP Task Force on Racial Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. Can you talk about the genesis of this task force and its work? Good morning, Dan, thanks for um, allowing us to be here uh, this morning. And I'm happy to talk about this particular issue and how the task force was formed. ASHP, as you know, has a long standing commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, there's been a lot of work around inclusion of women and equity for women. There's been work around the LGBT community. So we have this long-standing commitment to addressing issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, last year, as everyone is aware, we had some significant social protests in response to the death of George Floyd and others, other Black Americans at the hands of police. And that really focused national attention on systemic racism in our society and how it's impacting communities of color, in particular Black Americans. The social protests also renewed the urgency for ASHP to take some tangible actions and some immediate steps to address health inequities that are results of the systemic racism in our society that are negatively impacting outcomes in people of color. This was part of ASHP's effort to more broadly address issues of DEI that impact the pharmacy workforce. So that's ASHP, that's pharmacy education, residency training, et cetera. The task force was commissioned last year, June of 2020, coincident with the commissioning of the task force, which by the way, was unanimously approved by the board of directors last June. The ASHP House of Delegates also passed 
a policy on racial and discriminatory inequities that acknowledge the existence of systemic racism and its negative impact on society. And so these things happen together. Really, I think, uh, allowed ASHP to be a strong voice for matters around DEI. And so the work of the task force really aligns with ASHP's broader DEI initiatives. And I think it represents a very important step as we uh, work towards a more diverse, equitable, and inclusive environment for all of us. So Paul, you talk about tangible actions and immediate next steps. So could you summarize some of the high-level task force recommendations for us? Yeah, happy to do that. The recommendations really focused on six different areas, areas within ASHP's purview. And so we focused on governance and committees, and that relates to how our board slate is put together, i.e. our committee on nominations, as well as other leadership within the organization and how our committees are structured. There's some recommendations around education and training, which really focuses not just on residency training, but also some recommendations for colleges and schools of pharmacy as regards increasing the enrollment of underrepresented minority students and helping them to be successful um, and exposing students of color to health system pharmacy opportunities. We focused some on research. We focused on publications and engaging people of color in publishing in the AJHP, other tools and resources that ASHP makes available. We focused on advocacy, uh, marketing, and communications. And so we touched on all of those different areas. And we focused also on some specific target audiences, and those include ASHP itself, so its members as well as staff, uh, colleges and schools of pharmacy, ASHP accredited residency programs, and then hospitals and health systems. And so the recommendations focus on those several target groups, hopefully giving them some actionable steps that they can take to move the needle with regard to DEI in the pharmacy workforce. Got it. Yvette, the task force chose to use the terminology BIPOC. Can you define BIPOC for the listeners and talk about why the task force selected that particular terminology? Sure. BIPOC is Black, Indigenous, and people of color. Now, while, as Paul so eloquently outlined, the task force was created on the premise of a lot of historical issues that were affecting primarily the Black population at the time. As our work progressed, the task force decided to broaden our outreach, if you will, in terms of inclusion of other minority groups. So whereas we were operating initially from the basis of just the general people of color umbrella, if you will, it was felt that BIPOC was more inclusive from a United States context in terms of specifically Black Americans and Indigenous groups having undergone or having been exposed to some other more unique disproportional injustice and racial issues. So it was felt to be a more inclusive context for our task force work. I'm not gonna lie though, I was not very familiar with BIPOC, the acronym in terms of its inclusivity. So I was very surprised when I went back and after we started 
utilizing the acronym in our task force work, went back, kind of did some research, and it was first coined back in 2013. But again, fast forwarding to the summer of 2020 and the issues that were going on, it really took hold, especially in social media domain. We intended to incorporate that in our task force work. Thanks for that. I think that's helpful for the readers of the recommendations and listeners to the podcast to understand the the use of BIPOC and and that history. It's very interesting. Well, let's turn to the recommendations a bit. I want to really get a sense, a reaction from each of you in terms of whether there's one particular recommendation that really resonates with you. And that might be difficult to boil it down to one. But let's start there. And Vicki, let's start with you. Which of the recommendations really most resonates with you? So I thought all of the recommendations were great, but one of them that resonated highly with me was the one where we encourage colleges of pharmacy and accredited residency programs to provide ongoing education to appreciate diversity of of the populations that we serve. Also, to include in the education cultural competency. I think when we improve cultural competency, it will improve health outcomes of underrepresented minorities. I thought the guidance and the standards that we recommended included specific languages and encourages ongoing education and and training to eliminate implicit bias. And implicit bias, actually, we have it, and many times we don't realize we have it. And so one of our recommendations was to make sure that the education for the residency programs and the colleges of pharmacy includes this. And also enhance racial diversity and to foster a more inclusive environment for the residents and colleges of pharmacy, students and colleges of pharmacy. You know, it's interesting, Vicki, your connection of the implementation of the task force recommendations and ultimately the impact on patient outcomes. That's Paul Walker and Paula Bramowitz wrote an editorial to accompany the task force recommendations in HHP. And that's where they ended their editorial and talked about the ultimate beneficiaries of this work would be our patients. Can you talk a bit more though, Vicki, you started to talk a bit about implicit bias. And I'm just wondering if, if you could expand on that a bit for the audience. It's a term that some of us are familiar with, but maybe others not so much. So actually, I was very surprised about the implicit bias that I had. At our hospital, there's mandatory training that we have to complete. And in that mandatory training, there are these little scenarios that are presented to us. And I could not believe the implicit bias that I had in myself. So I think implicit bias is those biases that we have inside of us that we don't even recognize we have. And I think if we don't get the training to identify the implicit bias, those implicit biases will stay within us. So I'm happy for the training that I received at my institution. I'm glad that they took the time to to make that mandatory training available because it helped me to identify biases that I had that I did not realize that I have. So I think ASHP recommending that implicit bias training be part of the 
training and residency programs, and also in colleges of pharmacy will help our students early on to identify these things and try to correct them. Thanks, Vicki. Jeff Clark, let's turn back to you for a minute. Which of the recommendations resonates most with you as you take a step back and look at the task force work? Yeah, for me, I think one of the ones that really stands out through this year, since I've been on my fourth year advanced practice experiences, is encouraging preceptors to include more topic discussions with students around race and economic status and health literacy. Throughout pharmacy school, you're giving a few hours to just focus on those areas. And until you get out there in the real practice field, you really can't understand the different types of people you're going to come across and how to engage and get them to feel comfortable with talking to you about their health, talking with you about their finances and how we can improve their, the patient care that we provide. And I believe that it's an area where we have a lot of opportunity to continue to grow and expand upon is having those discussions when they're happening at the patient's bedside and then going back and going over and reflecting on how we can improve, how we can become better and just make people feel more comfortable so we can provide better care. So Jeff, this past year then, as you were completing your P4 year, did you start to integrate this into your approach with your patients and even in your interactions with your colleagues and your preceptors throughout the year? I definitely at the beginning of the year was fairly uncomfortable with bringing up these topics. I think as the protests continued to grow, as I kept going into more and more patient rooms where I would have my minority patients who just felt more comfortable talking with me being a minority about their health, they would be more comfortable talking about vaccine development and, you know, creation and just, is it safe? And I started to have these conversations with my preceptors along the way. And it's a rough road. And some of those conversations don't go as planned. And you're not sure where to begin or where to end. But I'm glad that that door is starting to become open and that we can begin to have those conversations. Well, I imagine that you will continue to travel that road as you begin your residency in June. Yvette, what about you? When you think about these recommendations, take a step back, which resonate most with you? For me, what really hit home was the education emphasis. And I think probably that's the focus since I served on that particular subgroup, but the overall encompassing nature of the educational aspect and how our task force tried to structure the recommendations to relay the fact that it is a continuum of education. As Vicki mentioned, our own implicit biases that we don't even realize all along the course of our professional development, be it as a student and then progressing into professional life. I think that it just really hit home for me during the course of this work in terms of trying to manifest that education so that it is more actionable, more top of mind. It is interesting to me that if you take a step back and really look at the substance of our education while we're in school is a lot of focus on actual healthcare and improvement in healthcare of our patients, but it doesn't necessarily include 
those social determinants, which comprise a much more significant percentage of how well that patient is going to do, as opposed to just whether or not we are adhering to XYZ guideline for a particular disease state. There is so much more to consider. And I think just the education lent towards that awareness and the spectrum in terms of how it goes all along in truly lifelong learning process. That is really what stuck out for me. Paul Walker, it's interesting to listen to Yvette, Jeff, and Vicki. They all immediately make that connection back to the patient and patient outcomes. And, you know, as the person who had a chance to sort of sit at the head of the table, so to speak, and help guide this process, is that where you landed clearly at the end of your editorial, you landed there, but is that your perspective as well? I think there are several things that were important to me as a result of this work, and certainly the ones that Yvette, Vicki, and Jeff talked about with regard to patient outcomes and inclusion of social determinants of health in the care that we provide and the way we interact with patients um, is important. There's a fair amount of uh, literature, primarily from physicians, but I think perhaps by extrapolation, we can pull it through into the work that we do. And that is that when there's concordance between the provider and the patient, the outcomes are a lot better for a lot of different reasons that have been speculated in the literature. And so I think those recommendations that talk about the education of students, the pull through of that information into experiential learning and subsequently into residency training and practice is really important. But a couple of other things that I think, and you know, sitting at, as you mentioned, at the head of the table sort of guiding the process, a couple of other things that to me were relevant, and that is how do we move the needle in terms of the percentages of BIPOC candidates engaged in pharmacy education and ultimately in practice. We have to address that issue. And so some of the issues around or the recommendations around how do we attract BIPOC students into pharmacy and how do we help facilitate their success, I think are really critical issues. One of the other things that's very important to me is with regard to faculty. How many BIPOC faculty members do we see in colleges of pharmacy? Because what potential applicants to colleges of pharmacy and schools of pharmacy see with regard to the makeup of the faculty, if they don't see themselves represented there, I think that can have a negative impact on selection of where they choose to go to school and the numbers of them that ultimately actually get into colleges of pharmacy, make applications and and so forth. So I think those two issues, representation of BIPOC individuals among faculty and the issues around successful recruitment and matriculation of BIPOC students through pharmacy schools are also very, very important because when we increase the number of BIPOC practitioners, we should help to improve the health outcomes in the patients that we serve. So, Paul, at the University of Michigan, have there been concerted efforts to try to increase the recruitment of BIPOC students? Uh, Yes, we have a strategic plan. Um, It's actually, we're coming to the conclusion of our five-year strategic plan, which included hiring a chief officer for diversity, equity, and inclusion for our college. She has done a phenomenal job on a lot of fronts, but one of the ones that she's worked very closely with our faculty on, our our recruitment efforts. How do we make sure that our announcements are reaching 
potential candidates of color? How do we make the interview process more equitable? How do we expose BIPOC students to potential opportunities as faculty members and things along those lines? And so we are making progress. We have not made nearly the progress we would like, but yes, we are trying to address issues around faculty recruitment so that BIPOC individuals, and not just BIPOC individuals, but diversity across the board, women in pharmacy, LGBTQ, and so forth in our faculty. So yes, those efforts are underway at the University of Michigan. So Vicki and Yvette, I want to bring both of you into this. And Paul made the reference about broader diversity efforts. And one of the things that strikes me is that there's a role here, there's a discussion here around intersectionality. And I'm interested in your thoughts on whether there are unique intersections of being BIPOC and being a woman. And just be very interested in your perspectives on that intersection. Vicki, do you want to start? So I'll explain intersectionality a little bit, just in case those listening don't understand it. So it's a framework for conceptualizing a person, a group of people, or social problem as affected by a number of discriminations and disadvantages. And it takes into account people's overlapping identities and experiences in order to understand the complexities of the prejudices they face. So in other words, intersexual theory asserts that people are often disadvantaged by multiple sources of oppression, their race, their class, their gender, identity, sexual orientation, religion, and other identity markers. And so being a woman and being a Black woman is a big intersection. And it's not independent. Being a woman and being Black is a complex convergence. It's an intersection that is key to the success of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So we face two different things that every day. And so it's crucial to equity work, in my opinion. And without an intersection lens to be able to see that many different things converge, like I said before, not only sex, not only race and religion, we can't just look at people with one lens. There is an intersection of so many things that affects equity, inclusion and diversity and all the things that we do each and every day. Yvette, what are your thoughts here in terms of intersectionality and specifically the intersection between being a woman and being BIPOC? So the intersection of being not only female, but also being a BIPOC female is certainly an important intersection that is commonly seen throughout the not only pharmacy profession, but just in general. I view it as a double dose of potential implicit biases and succumbing to systemic racial injustices. But it also is, for me, an opportunity to try to shine the light in terms of getting through that intersection and being a somewhat of a poster child or an example, if you will, in terms of how to rise above and be able to overcome some of those biases and and injustices within the pharmacy profession. 
And I just want to add that the for us as black women, it doesn't exist as one bias. So there's a double bias there for us. There's the intersection of being a BIPOC and being a woman. So it's not one thing. So there's that convergence that makes things even more complicated, I think. Yeah, I would definitely agree with you, Vicki. And also, you know, you don't want to succumb to, in terms of having the two separate identities, if you will, one being BIPOC and one being female, I'm always reticent or have been reticent of being just a tick mark in terms of an EEO hire, if you will. Like, oh, we've got to have somebody of color. Oh, we've got to have a female. Let's hire Yvette kind of thing. So I think just getting past that superficial inherent bias is a difficult thing to overcome. You know, I have a good skill set that I can bring to the table. And oh, by the way, yes, I am indigenous and I am female. Trying to reverse the order in which characteristics and desired education and abilities are looked upon in terms of what I can actually contribute and bring to the table besides just fulfilling the check boxes for EEO as an example. I just want to add one other thing. I just think that creating an organizational culture that welcomes and supports intersectional groups of people is key to the success of diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. So we need to create that sort of organization. Yeah, Dan, and if I can offer, you know, what I hear Vicki and Yvette talking about is the complexity of who we are as individuals and that we can't separate our race from our gender, from our religious culture, from all of the different identifiers that we have. You know, when we talk about DEI issues, while we are advocating in these guidelines for BIPOC specifically, we can't exclude the issues that women face, the issues that Native Americans face, the issues that Muslims or Hindu or other religious groups may face that are just part of the implicit bias and racism in this, the fabric of, of America. So it's a really complex issue and intersectionality does have to be addressed because we're the sum of all of our identifiers where you can't just put one in a box and say, okay, I'm only going to deal with that and not address all of the other issues around DEI that affect our other identifiers. Absolutely. It actually, it strikes me that we could probably do an entire program on this topic of intersectionality, but it, it is so complex and something that needs to be synthesized as I think as we go forward with the, the task force recommendations, and it's not unidimensional. Jeff, let me turn to you to talk about your experiences as a student from being invited to participate on the panel and then the actual workings, uh, the, the group's discussions and development of the recommendations. I can't say that I was surprised that ASHP wanted to make sure they include students. And one of the things that brought me to ASHP is the fact that they give students the opportunity to serve in a very significant role as a student leader. It was what really drew me to the organization. I was a little surprised to get the call, but at the same time, I was glad to get in and serve in that role. 
I find it to be very critical to just have that student representation in the task force because there are a lot of the recommendations that are around students and residents. And in my position of being the current chair of the pharmacy student forum, it really allowed me to, to come into the task force with a better understanding of what students are looking for and how ASHP can help support that student and all, even that resident growth. I have a very good relationship too with the new practitioner forum. And although we didn't necessarily have a member from the new practitioner forum on the committee, I work with them hand in hand. They reached out to me or really wanted to be engaged on this. And I think it's one of those things that I didn't really expect was throughout the entire process is how many students and new practitioners and residents reached out to me and just wanted to figure out what's going on with the task force. You know, what are they talking about? How can they get involved? What is the outlet going to look like in the future? And one of the things that we've been able to do after the recommendations is incorporate a lot of those issues with, into our strategic goals within the pharmacy student forum and a new practitioner forum so that we can really make sure that we push the efforts of really promoting diversity forward as we continue to grow. So Jeff, when you heard from your student colleagues, were there specific things that they wanted to make sure that you were paying attention to as a member of the task force and advocating for? Absolutely. There's no uh, surprise that throughout the years, getting pharmacies becoming more competitive. And there's a big push for pharmacy students to go into residency. And I think one of the bigger issues that a lot of students and even residents, especially those that are BIPOC, wanted to really make sure that the task force addresses is giving the opportunities to BIPOC students to get into residencies. How are we making sure that they know about residencies? And so for one of the recommendations, and we have quite a few of them that are just around looking at that data, looking at how we can understand those disparities and just seeing where is that opportunity and how we can continue to grow. Since residency now is becoming a very important part of your career education that you need in order to get to the next stage. You know, it's your response there, Jeff, is a good segue. I wanted to start to talk to the panel about if there are any personal experiences that you as panel members had that guided your work and your thinking while you were on the panel. And and Jeff, I'm just going to stick with you for a minute in terms of You know, even your decision to go to pharmacy school, your decision to pursue a residency, and, you know, if there were personal experiences that you had that that guided your participation on the panel. Absolutely. For me, I would say in my second year is when I really started to figure out that I wanted to do a residency. And I didn't necessarily know where to go to find someone that could really serve as a good mentor for me. I think that through pharmacy school, some people connect better than others with their professors, or maybe there's a preceptor alumni that really helps to guide you. But one of the things I looked at was ASHP's mentorship program and just trying to reach out and find a mentor through that program. And it's a challenge to use something and to just reach out to someone who you may not know just to see if they can help you out. And I think that the task force, a big part of it is how can we make it easier for students to feel more comfortable, to help them have that skill set, to have that education about where do you want to practice? How do you get there? And for me, I found it to be hard at first, but then I was able to find people through ASHP that could serve in that role. And I think that as the task force has outlined, 
is that we need to continue that efforts to keep promoting mentorship within ASHP to help because pharmacy, it is getting more challenging. It is getting harder. So as that continues to grow, you need more help in order to make sure you can make it to the next stage. So Vicki, Jeff talks about making it to the next stage and, and that help that's needed. I would imagine that as you look at the experiences that you've had as you navigated your career, that there had to be a few that guided your thinking as you participated on the task force. Yes, more than a few. And like Jeffrey, I have to say I had really great mentors along the way. I do think mentoring is the key to success. And in fact, I talked to residents, I talked to students, I talked to my technicians that have a shining star and I try to help move them up. Mentoring and knowing how to connect with people who could help you along the way. I was very lucky. I must say that I've met many presidents from ASHP, but if there wasn't that one mentor who took me along with them to the mid-year clinical meetings and made sure that I met someone, then I wouldn't, wouldn't have known anyone. So I think mentoring is the key and not all people of color have the opportunity to meet people who could help them move up in the organization. I think we, we need to do a better job at that. I was one of the lucky ones who had several mentors in ASHP that brought me along the way. So I do think mentoring is the key. I also think one of the things that I really love is uh, each one of us should teach someone else. And so what I've learned through my years as a pharmacist, I've tried to impart to people below me. So I'm trying to bring up the next group like Jeffrey. I love working with the residents. I love getting them involved, starting at the local level, then at the state level, and then ASHP. So I'm hoping to help those people who don't have someone at a higher level to show them the way. I want to, because not many of us will have those mentors that have the road to success in ASHP. I do think it's important to have mentors and I think the ASHP mentoring program is great. I have encouraged the College of Pharmacies in New York to have these mentoring programs and help our students know all of the wonderful opportunities that's out there for them. They don't really know unless there's someone there to expose them to it. I do think ASHP does a great job doing that. Vicki, it was interesting to hear you talk about your mentors, and there's a, a name that comes to mind because I remember an old friend of mine back in the 80s talking about this guy that he worked with back at that time. It was St. Luke's Roosevelt, a guy by the name of Harvey Maldo, who I think was also one of your mentors. And I was just wondering if you could talk a bit about your mentors. You, you talked about those people who introduced you to ASHP presidents and got you involved. Talk to us more about that. I'd love to hear about those experiences. So Harvey was one of my most cherished mentors. I worked with him at St. Luke's Roosevelt. I started as a pharmacist and I would always go in early and volunteer to do whatever was new. And Harvey got me involved at the city level. He was president of New York State and he put me on the nominations committee. I didn't know anyone and I had small children. And then Harvey 
called my husband and said, she has to get involved. So you have to watch the kids. So Harvey got me involved, not only on the city level, he got me involved on the state level. He was right there when I became president of the city. I became president of the state and ASHP. He paid for me to attend the ASHP meetings and he would introduce me to people. And I was also very lucky to have a, another very special mentor by the name of Eric Hola, who is very special to me. He was like a brother. Harvey was like my father and he's still like my father. He checks on me all the time. He's responsible for me becoming director of this big hospital in New York City. It's something I never, <laughs> I never envisioned in my whole life. But I was lucky because Eric Hola would always schedule dinners for me to meet presidents at ASHP. So I would go to the mid-year meetings that Harvey paid for, and Eric would uh, take me around and introduce me to everybody. So because I got to meet people, I got put on different councils that I never applied for, actually. So Jeffrey, I was very lucky because I got to meet everybody. And because I had a seat at the table, I was able to be put on several different uh, committees. I remember even Eric introducing me to Paul Abramowitz. And from that meeting, Paul and I have like a little connection. And Paul has always been encouraging me to be involved. So I've been very lucky. I've had really good mentors who have become my extended family. Mentoring is the key to success. Talk about mentorship in action. So listening to both of you, it's really easy to understand the emphasis on the College of Pharmacy experience and then the residency program experience as well and why there was so much focus on that. Give your personal experiences that might have guided you as you participated on the panel and its work. Well, I think the overarching theme of mentoring is ringing tried and true because you don't know what you don't know. My personal experience was a little bit different in that I was exposed to the Indian Health Service early in my primary schooling. And so it hooked me from the very beginning and and I didn't ever waver in terms of my pursuit of a pharmacy career with the overall long-term plan of being able to serve uh, Native American people. I think just as, as Jeff had mentioned previously in some of his comments, when you're able to connect with people like yourself, specifically within a patient care setting, I think there is a bond that is formed and I feel like patients are more open to acceptance of the healthcare you're providing, the advice that you're providing, because they feel like you get them and that you understand what they are going through and where they're coming from. And so I think that having had those experiences, that was kind of the framework of my mindset in the sense of serving on the task force in terms of ensuring that the recommendations and the work that we were doing was inclusive of many minority groups, because again, you don't know what you don't know. And so being able to impart 
education and mentoring and helping those that are coming up because like Vicki mentioned, that is extremely important. We have to be able to instill some of this knowledge and education into the groups that are following us so that we are paving the way for the future leaders and that they're equipped with with this information to continue to incorporate DEI principles, quite frankly, as we move forward. Paul Walker, Yvette just talked about paving the way for future leaders, and you hit upon this early on when you were giving an overview of the recommendations. Let me preference my comments by going back to the question that you were just asking about in terms of what things impacted us as we did our work on the task force. And one of the things that all three of my colleagues mentioned was opportunity. You know, mentoring is important, but opportunity is also very important. You know, we talk about being in the right place at the right time, but there are times when BIPOC individuals can't be in the right place at the right time because they're not aware of the opportunities or they don't have access to the right to be in the right place at the right time. It's really important to emphasize that the task force believes that the most qualified person should be assigned or elected to governing roles within ASHP. I emphasize that because one of the questions that I've gotten as I've spoken to different groups about the recommendations is this issue of you know, lowering residency standards to engage more BIPOC individuals or lowering the standards for uh, committee appointments and things of this nature. And that is not what the task force is advocating for. We're advocating for opportunity for all qualified individuals. And we strongly believe that there are very well qualified BIPOC candidates who would make great leaders within our organization, within our health systems, et cetera, but they don't necessarily have the kinds of opportunities and exposures that many majority individuals have that enable them to stand out from their peers or that help them to get noticed and recognized and thereby get appointed to different committees, et cetera. And so we think that it's really important that we broaden our pools for well-qualified candidates. You know, if we look at how the committee on nominations that sets the slate for presidential officers and the board of directors is chosen, well, they're chosen from House of Delegate members. But if you look at the, the makeup of the House of Delegates, there are very few BIPOC individuals in the House. And so that lowers the numbers of individuals that could be considered for the slate. And so by advocating for changes to the bylaws that enable a broadening of the qualified candidates for appointment to the nomination committees and so forth, we believe that we really have the opportunity to expand the diversity of leadership within our organization. Thanks, Paul. And I appreciate that you provided that clarity on a question that many may have. So that's very important, I think, to the overall discussion. Well, with that, that's all the time we have today. I want to thank Paul Walker, Vicki Powell, Jeffrey Clark, and Yvette Morrison for joining us today to discuss the report on the ASHP Task Force on Racial Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, which was recently published on AJHP.org. 
Please join me here each month for discussions on contemporary pharmacy practice issues and interviews with AJHP authors. Thanks everyone. It was great talking with you today. Thank you for listening to AJHP Voices. For more information about AJHP, the premier source for impactful, relevant, and cutting-edge professional and scientific content that drives optimal medication use and health outcomes, please visit AJHP.org.